You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. All right, everybody, welcome to this week's Reversing Climate Change. I'm your guest host this week, Asa Kamer, and I'm here with Siobhan Montoya-Lavender. And we are interviewing this week Nick Kuznets. And Nick is a reporter for Inside Climate News, and he reports on the fossil fuel industry. His work has won numerous awards, including from the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the Society of American Business Editors and Writers. His work has appeared in more than a dozen publications, including The Washington Post, Business Week, The Nation, Fast Company, and The New York Times. And so we are going to be talking about an article that he wrote back in the beginning of December of 2022. And it was about uh, Project Bison, which is a project by a company out of California called Carbon Capture Co. I think a lot of our listeners probably know about this project. They know about Mm -hmm. this company. And they want to build a large DAC facility. If they get to it first, it would be the largest in the world. There's others about as big that are planned in other locations, but it's it's ambitious in size. And it's going to be located uh, where they're proposing to locate it in Rock Springs, Wyoming. And they want to remove 5 million tons of CO2 annually by 2030 with this project. And so in December, Nick went to this community, to Rock Springs, to report on the company's outreach that they're doing, you know, their public outreach work that included at least one town hall that he talked about and I think some other components to it. So he attended that and he also spoke with a lot of local folks out there. And the context of all this is, you know, Wyoming has been proactive in Carbon capture has done some some point source carbon capture, but this would be kind of their first foray into direct air capture, carbon removal. So it would be certainly a new new endeavor and not something that we really know how it, it's going to go. For me, I know for me personally, you know, after reading that article, I've been very intrigued because, you know, we cover carbon removal on the show and carbon removal newsroom, the other show I do. We get a lot of info from companies and governments about what they want to do, but much less about what people on the ground who live where some of these projects are proposed, think about it. And so with that, sorry, that was a long intro. Normally we are more conversational at the time. I I like it. It's prestigious. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The 60 minutes of carbon removal. That's our goal. (laughs) So hi, Nick. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. And Siobhan, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm on vacation, but I'm here nonetheless because I'm so excited to talk to Nick. So here we are. Right on. Okay. So Nick, I gave a little bit of information about Project Bison, but can you just like start off by telling us, you know, we'll include the the article in the show notes for people who haven't read it, but can you tell us about what you were looking for, what you found when you were there, just kind of an overview of your experience reporting from Wyoming? Sure. Yeah. So last year I was doing a whole series of stories both about carbon capture and carbon removal, you know, recognizing these are separate fields, but particularly when it comes to direct air capture and some of the players involved and some of the regulations involved and the tax incentives involved, there's a lot of overlap. And so I I was particularly interested, I mean, I'd come at the project in particular because I do report on oil and gas and oil and gas companies are, of course, big players in the carbon capture space and and to some degree in the carbon removal and direct air capture space too. But then this Wyoming project jumped up 
from a, you know, a much smaller company that's not tied to oil and gas at all, at least not in the financing. And the timing was just, I mean, it was the first, first time that there was a real specific project planned in a specific place, where, as you mentioned, they, they were having this town hall event because they wanted to meet with uh, and hear from locals. And so they were really starting to kind of like engage in a project level. And to me, that was a really great opportunity to start to look at, you know, these projects becoming reality, because that was part of the kind of context for me was with, there was this huge wave of public money coming first from the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and then from the Inflation Reduction Act tax credits, the expansion of the carbon capture and tax credits, suddenly it was like this potential industry that so many people had been, you know, dreaming about or promising for so long was starting to sort of at least get built. Absolutely. This is sort of a random question, but how did you find out about the town hall meeting? Through a source. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, I mean, I had done reporting related to Wyoming and carbon capture okay. you know, independent of this already because the state, as you mentioned, like that particularly because it's it's such a coal and oil and gas dependent state. Wyoming produces like 40% of the country's coal and fossil fuels in general provide something around, I mean, I'm not sure of the exact number, but it's around 70% of like tax revenues for state and local government. So it's hugely dependent. And so because of that, the state has really been pursuing carbon capture for a long time, primarily as a way to try to prolong the life of coal plants. So I had had sources there and I was aware of this project and I had actually bumped into someone at a conference who said that they were kind of going to be doing outreach. So I started asking around in Wyoming and just as it happened, someone knew someone who lived in the town, who'd gotten the mailer and I was like, all right, well, I'm going next week. All right. On the ground journalism. That's, I guess that's, that's awesome. you're giving us a little inside peek. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, but in general, this was the kind of thing that was possible because I was reporting on the topic, like through a series of stories. So I'd been mm. talking to a lot of people, both from industry and environmental groups and, you know, all sorts of different sectors. And that's how I heard about this. Cool. And can you like paint a picture a bit of like, what was the, I think you mentioned it was in a high school gym and like, what, who, who was talking, who, who showed up? Like, just sure. kind of give us an, I mean, I'm personally fascinated by like the actual details of, of how this is starting to like play out. So yeah, I mean, this is like? the first one happening and we're talking about an industry that's going to be as massive as the oil and gas industry. That's a frequent thing we say is that CDR will be as big as oil and gas. And yet here we are at the very, very beginning really. And this is one of the very first town halls that's ever happened. And it's, I'm so curious about public reaction. I'm so curious about what we can learn as an industry from events like this and from these early pioneer projects. So yeah, paint us a picture. Sure. Yeah. So it was at a, a community college in Rock Springs. And so Rock Springs, just briefly, is it's in the southwestern corner of the state, which is like essentially high desert, you know, very sparsely populated. And the town itself is a longtime coal town. Uh, there was coal found there sort of late 19th century. And because of that, and because of the kind of geology of the state and the topography of the state, the Union Pacific ended up routing its main line right through there because the coal, you know, fueled the the uh, locomotives. Then more recently, there 
there's a big gas field just north of the town um, that was one of the first big fracking plays. So oil and gas is a big part of the economy there. Um, and so this community college, part of what it does helps like, you know, train and helps people get ready for jobs in some of those fields. So the town hall was in like a sort of large classroom area that was big enough to fit. There were more than 100 people in there and it was totally packed. In fact, so I had been told that I was not going to be admitted. It was a little unclear, you know, they had said it was because it was full and they wanted to prioritize residents. I didn't know whether maybe they also didn't want journalists in there. It was unclear. But I, for what it's worth, other, another resident of the area who I was put in touch with before I went was also told she wouldn't be able to go in. But mm. so she and I kind of went together and they just let, you know, let us in. And yeah, it was packed. People were pretty animated. People had only had about one week's notice or even less that this thing was was happening. So I think mostly people didn't really know what the project was or even what the technology was or anything like that. Yeah, I'm I'm just curious. Like, I, I feel like for me, I'm imagining if I got like a mailer like that, like I'm busy. I don't know that I would have time to like go to some company's thing talking about what, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure you talk to people there. Why were people interested in showing up in the first place? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a big range and I definitely met with people not there who did get the mailer who couldn't go or as you said you know were busy or there were people who like hadn't even realized they'd gotten the mailer because they don't check their mail you know as a physical mailer is how they send it out like a postcard but i there was a real range i mean there were people who were kind of really intrigued and and were, were really hopeful that this company could maybe be like the start of a new industry um, because it's an economy, as I said, that's really dependent on fossil fuels. It's been a really, it's been a boom bust economy for many, mm. it's for more than a century really. And in particular, some of those resources are tending more towards bust, you know, coal specifically, particularly. So there were people with that in mind. There were ranchers who were worried that this was going to bring new wind and solar de development that was going to both be like a an aesthetic blight on the land, but a physical one too. To there's this solar plant that's pretty close to where the Project Bison site is, and it was the first commercial scale solar plant in Wyoming. It was completed just a few years ago, and it was very controversial. I mean, first of all, there's you know it's a pretty conservative state, of course, and a conservative part of the state, and people were not necessarily welcoming of renewable energy in general but then once the project was built you know a solar farm has to be fenced and once those uh, fences put up these pronghorn which are kind of like an antelope like animal that lives out west started showing up on the highway that runs next to it and eventually the the company that built it commissioned a study and they had built it right in the middle of pronghorn habitat and displaced you know part of the grazing and activity of the of the herd there um and ranchers also rely on open range there this is like there's a lot of open range in this part of wyoming and so they were worried that the project would you know bring more fencing that would shut them out of places so there were a whole set of people like that i mean there were sort of economic development people so it was a pretty wide range and then there were also people who were just like you know, what's this California company coming with this cockamamie plan that's just another outsider coming to like make money off of 
our resources, which in this case is our air, I guess, you know, people are saying, and go back to California and do it there. And what was the, can you tell us a little bit about like what you saw the presentation from the company? Yeah. So the, the presentation was really detailed. They went through a lot of, you know, really specific information about what they were planning and the woman who was leading it, you know, to her credit said, I will take as many questions as you want and stay as long as you want. And and she did that. And there were tons of questions and people were asking about like, and the questions were all over. I mean, there were some that were climate change. It's real, but it's not a real threat or it's real, but it's not caused by people. And there were people who had really specific questions about how much energy is this going to use and how much land is that going to mean? You're going to have to cover with wind and solar. And, you know, what's your business model? How are you? What happens if you go under? Who cleans up the site if you go under? Why are you selling all these credits? Why not just, you know, lock away the CO2 and maximize that? So it was a real big range and and a lot. It got into a lot of real detailed specifics about the project. I learned a lot even from it, you know, that might not have gotten into with me. So I feel like for me, just hearing this is exciting to hear that there's this level of interest and action and involvement and that the company was really receptive to saying, hey, we're going to really get into the nitty gritty and, and fill out these questions. You know, I think one thing you brought up in your article that I was particularly interested in was how local governments are very much in favor of these new carbon capture or direct air capture initiatives and was there any government representation there or did you or was this purely like you know on site within you know 50 mile locals or or was there kind of any kind of government representation that was pairing along with the company yeah there were and they there weren't government officials they they didn't give like they weren't part of the presentations although there was someone from the university of wyoming where They've done a lot of the geological work, mapping out the the subsurface in Wyoming to see where would be where would be suitable places for storing CO two. But there were people from the state government and local government who were there in attendance just to talk with people, like someone from the state's economic development agency. So, I mean, as I said, like in Wyoming, they're kind of all all in on this. At least the governor's office. So the sort of executive part of the state government, there's definitely criticism in the state of that from different sides. I mean, I think there's some on the conservative side who think the governor has sort of a net zero (laughs) pledge, right? Which is not about eliminating fossil fuels, but it's purely about making Wyoming into like a destination for other states' CO2. But there are also environmental groups in the state that think that it's like this blind devotion and that rather than making a real effort to diversify the state's economy, um, they're just kind of chasing this so far pretty fruitless effort to, you know, chase carbon capture or and now carbon removal as like a new economic engine. Yeah. And I think in your article, you said that the Wyoming legislature passed a law that all it would somehow encourage all coal plants to have carbon capture, but that none of them yet have that. So so it seems like there's government support, but at least the point source carbon capture on coal plants hasn't panned out. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And and I mean, Wyoming is 
it, so it hasn't panned out anywhere really with with a couple notable exceptions um wyoming has given about as much support as you know anywhere that i've come across and as you said there was this law passed in 2020 that like it was essentially like a version of what other states are doing for renewable energy portfolio standards where the state will say by 2030 you have to utilities you have to get 30% 50% whatever it is from renewable sources the state said utilities you have to get i think it was 20% but it was a certain amount of your power from coal and carbon capture and mm. the utilities have largely resisted this because it's extremely expensive and it's much cheaper to build renewable power it's much cheaper to close a coal plant and replace it with wind or solar or or to convert it to natural gas than to put carbon capture on a coal plant there are no commercially operating coal carbon capture plants in the country right now so the utilities have been kind of resisting it there's this regulatory process that's playing out but it has not actually resulted in in it happening do you think that the community is aware of the price differentiation and how the industry is moving towards renewables surely based on cost effectiveness? Or is that not really permeated the community? Are they maybe were they aware long before I was aware? I mean, how what do you think is like the public perception of the transition? Well, I mean, with the one caveat that I wanna just say this is anecdotal, what I'm saying, right? It's just not yeah. like I pretend, but I think certainly there's a good amount of awareness. A lot of people I spoke with just like generally see the writing on the wall that like the world is moving away from coal and they recognize this, right? And so I think that some of the people see that and think, okay, so we've got to figure out what's next. And if carbon capture is part of that, then great. And if this kind of carbon removal thing is part of it, okay, then there's other people who are a little more resistant. And I think there's a lot of resentment there because- also, part of what's driving it is a lot of the so Wyoming produces not only a lot of coal, but a lot of power with that coal. They have power plants and produce way more electricity than they use. And it's all exported to other states, mm -hmm. a lot of it to West Coast states. And those states have passed, you know, 100% renewable energy targets, right? And so that's part of what's driving this. There's the economics, there's the regulatory piece of it. And so I think people are resentful of the fact that like what's happening in Wyoming is being determined by other states, right? The states that are buying the fossil fuels that are getting produced in Wyoming. So, I mean, there's an awareness of it and, you know, to some degree resentment, but also resignation, I think. And yeah. Yeah. That's the part of your piece that like kind of stayed with me was just like, the reality of what it must be like to be in a place where you that most of the jobs are coming from this coal plan and it's like a huge part of why the town exists and why a lot of people are probably even living there you know in terms of their their you know previous generations moving there to work in the coal plant i, I saw that rock springs has like a huge amount of like different nationalities of people living there because throughout history like a lot of people from different parts of the world have like come there for the opportunity of like the coal industry so it's really like, I mean, I don't know if they're quite at like the crossroads because it seems like the coal plant's still going to be around for another like 10 or 15 years. 
but at this a bit of a crossroads and having this conversation i'm just sitting here like wow i wish we like had some of these people we could talk to i mean like we're, we're asking you to like speak for all these people and you're doing a great job but it seems like a situation that provokes a lot of different um, perspectives probably and this town like kind of looking into the future like what's our future look like it's emotional and it's existential and you know you spoke with the one woman who worked at um the coal plant and still calls it my plant, you know, and had a strong connection to it. You know, I can't help but personally, you know, as a person who's would wishes all coal plants would shut down today for the sake of the climate. Like, you know, on the other hand, you can't really help but feel for someone like that. So, I mean, I think you pointed out that the coal plant employs 300 people. So if that shuts down, which it will in the next 10 or 15 years, and then Carbon Capture Co. is saying they can theoretically employ 200 people. I mean, that's not a bad, I think that's not a bad sales pitch. I mean, there's opportunity there for for people in Wyoming too, I would think. Yeah. And I should point out also that with the coal plant, part of the plan could be that, so it has four units and some of them, at least currently, the plan is to convert them to natural gas. So it could be that at least a couple okay. of them end up that could extend the life. I, it's it's kind of up in the air at this point, of course. So it could be that sort of half the plant closes and half of it turns into a natural gas plant, or it could be the whole that the whole thing eventually closes. Yes, but on the jobs, I mean, that's the promise, right? And and then I guess the question is, will that happen? And what kind of jobs will those be? Because the coal plant jobs are, have been like really good paying jobs union jobs, like Luann Varley, the woman who you mentioned, who I spent some time with, she spent her entire career at the plant and is now involved in the local labor union council. Yeah, they're well-paying jobs and there isn't a guarantee. I mean, certainly the company says they'll, they'll, they'll pay people well, but there's no particular guarantee of the quality of the jobs. And the 200 number is also if they reach their full scale, what you said, mm. which Five million. So initially, they're going to have a fraction of that capacity and a fraction of the number of jobs. That's certainly like what brought this woman, Luann Varley, and some others to the meeting, kind of with you know eyes open to say, "Hey, well, you know, what can they potentially provide?" Cool. Yeah. I also I think from you know just anecdotally from the questions you're talking about, it sounds like a pretty savvy you know, community in terms of awareness around like, hey, what happens if you go under? Are you just going to close up shop and walk away with these resting buildings? You know, I think it's it speaks to to probably prior experience of, you know, promises being made or initiatives starting or or projects starting. And then the community is aware enough to say, hey, um, who cleans this up? Who, you know, what are the contingency plans? And that's, you know, I think that's encouraging in a lot of ways to hear that that there is, a community advocating for itself and looking down the pipeline and being aware of different scenarios and different possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, that's, you know, there's a lot of oil and gas and there have been coal mines for a century uh, or more. And so they've been through it and they've had companies go under and abandon mines and abandon wells. Mm. They are, I think people there are pretty savvy about this. I mean, there's one other voice that I definitely would want to highlight someone who I met when I was there. And I don't think this is not representative of the community at all, but she is there. And she's a woman who is now involved with something called the Powder River Basin Resource Council, which is like, you know, there is not a whole lot of an environmental movement in Wyoming. There aren't many local environmental groups, but this is one of them. And um, she 
she actually worked in mines, but not in in coal. There's this other, there's a mineral called trona there. It's mm-hmm. used to make like glass and whole, like a ton of, a ton of products actually. And th- those mines have actually been taking up a lot of the jobs lost to coal and oil and gas so far. Um, so she spent her, you know, she worked in those mines for a long time until getting laid off. And now she's lives on a ranch that's owned by her family and they raise bison. And she's been really working to try to get bison, you know, reintroduced in places across the West. So for a while, she was trying to actually have her bison move move to different locations. And she had some bison go to a state park. Again, I, she's not like against the project bison. Well, she although she was somewhat resentful of the name, <laughs> I guess you'll see why. But I think she is definitely coming from the perspective that the state is just kind of like failing to get the memo on how like an energy economy is failing the state and, and, you know, seeing the writing on the wall with climate change and a shift to renewable energy. And she basically like looks at her herd and saying, look, we, we've devastated the landscape. And if we want to talk about like, you know, carbon removal, she said to me, like, you know, we want to talk about carbon removal and like pointed out at her herd. There is a lot of science suggesting that restoring natural landscapes um, and having certain megafauna like bison, you know, reintroduce can revive landscapes in a way that makes them absorb a lot more carbon dioxide uh, into the land. And so, I mean, I think she is somewhat skeptical of this project as like the next, you know, industrial promise that, you know, won't necessarily pan out and, and will have environmental impacts potentially. So, you know, I don't want to misrepresent again, she's not sort of saying all out against the project, but I think she just sees it as like another piece of missing the big picture of what the state needs to do in terms of like reorienting itself. Totally. Yeah. We were on on the other show that I work on carbon removal newsroom yesterday, we had a recording and the conversation was about public acceptability and some of the folks that are working on legislation to try to get carbon removal incentivized at the state level, not in Wyoming, but in other states. And it's just this really interesting tension. You know, we work on trying to promote and, and advocate for carbon removal, I think mostly based on the recognition from like, you know, like the IPCC and other research that shows like it'll be necessary to, you know, keep temperatures below a certain level. Yeah. So I guess, I, I guess it's, you know, that's, that's sort of the, like, no one like would care to hear what I had to say at this town hall or whatever, but like, you know, that's the question that I am so fascinated about when it comes to these public outreach and this public acceptability is like, there's like a global need meeting like a local requirement or like local trade-offs or local, maybe opportunities too. Yeah. and But I mean, I think, so one thing that, that I found interesting about um, the woman who I was just mentioning, her name's Michelle Irwin is that also speaks to something that's you you find in the scientific literature about this which is like when you look at any carbon removal approach um whether it's like engineered direct air capture or ocean approaches or afforestation um pretty much any of them once you get to really big scale start to have like real either risks or trade-offs or costs and like for direct air capture, you know, it's a ton of energy use, um, at least with current technologies. And so if that's going to be provided with 
renewable energy, it means a ton of land. And in the case of this project specifically, it was something like a thousand acres. So there is this kind of, from the IPCC, apparent need for carbon removal. But then when you look at actually doing it, it's like no one really knows how to do it at any at, at the kind of scale that might be needed without raising a whole new set of problems. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people advocate for portfolio approaches um, is not only that we don't know which one is actually going to be able to scale, like we can assume things and we can model things. We don't actually know what's what's really going to end up being viable at scale. But also we still are are muddling through the impacts of every single method at scale. Like what what does that actually look like? And so I think you bring up a really good point about this this might be, you know, one small project now, but I think keeping an eye to the future of like what does DAC look like at scale? What does ocean alkalinity look like at scale? What does afforestation look like at scale is really important and is and is going to have all sorts of human political consequences. And again, to Ace's point, both positive and negative, there's opportunity there and there's cost there. You know, I used to work doing um, environmental impact statements and field studies, field studies for major utility projects in the Western US. And so, you know, Pacific Gas and Electric, you know, wants to build a new gas line or whatever it is. And it's interesting because first of all, California has much, much, much more stringent regulations around this than a lot of the country. And so the fact, for example, just that you brought up that the bison, um, or excuse me, was it, was it that now I can think of as antelope, what's the word? Pronghorn. 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 <laughs> that the pronghorn, you know, they discovered that it had been built within some sort of migratory, it sounds like habitat or, or grazing habitat is something that probably would have been discovered before the project was built in, in certain States because of fish and wildlife regulations. And I'm going to be interesting to see how kind of policy catches up and how regulations catch up to a lot of deployment of CDR in new areas that maybe aren't accustomed to having major utility deployed with it, you know, concern towards environmental impact. And again, I'm curious, like how the government plays into this and this kind of push and pull between the government saying, yes, 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 let's bring in these new technologies. Let's let's grow our economy in this specific way. And then the reality of where that touches human lives on the ground saying, well, wait a minute, what's going to happen if this doesn't pan out or what's going to happen if I don't want to work in that industry, I think is a really, a really fair thing to say. And I also really liked how you talked about there's kind of these outside economic pressures that is driving the economy in Wyoming, which is really, it was a good reminder for me because sometimes that there can be resentment there, right? And I think sometimes I resent Wyoming for having an outsized impact in politics, right? That, mm-hmm. that Wyoming has two senators and so do I. Yeah. And yet those two senators are representing a lot fewer people than my senators are, you know? And yet that you bring up this really legitimate point that while I might have fewer representation, you know, less representation politically, I might have an outsized economic representation on other states, which is just a good point to bear in mind. Yeah, I, as a New Yorker, the same kind of I had the same kind of thoughts going through my head when I was particularly speaking with one woman who was just like airing a lot of that resentment. And but like Wyoming's economy is pretty much entirely dependent on uh, what other states or the world are are buying or doing. You know, mm. yeah, yeah, and that's a good, probably a good place to segue because I know we wanted to talk to you also about the headline for this article is "Carbon Removal Comes to Fossil Country." 
and I know this won't be the last project. And there already are other projects planned and to some level of planning in the Permian Basin in Texas and Oklahoma and in the Gulf. I, I know there was an application for one of the DAC hubs to be in the Gulf and Exxon has started to do some, you know, work to site um, carbon, you know, underground storage in uh, the Gulf. So, and even in uh, California, I think there was a, there's going to be an application for a DAC hub and Kern County. So this probably won't be the last time that either small startups or fossil fuel companies or some combination try to work to bring carbon removal projects to former like coal or oil and gas, you know, regions. And in fact, the DAC hub project, I think two of the four are supposed to be in former, I don't know, I forget the name, or I think resource areas or something, you know, basically fossil fuel areas. So I, 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 I find that fascinating. Do you have like a view on or, or other news from other, other projects or, you know, what, what, what else are you seeing out there in terms of the U S like where carbon removal might come to fossil country? Sure. So I did a little bit of reporting on um, another project, which you alluded to there, which is proposed in the Permian basin in West Texas. And this is planned by an oil company occidental and they had announced this earlier before mm-hmm. Project Bison won. So they say that they want to, that they're, well, actually, they're now, say they've started work on a DAC plant. It's outside Odessa, Texas. And the initial scale would be like 500,000 tons. And they say, you know, eventually getting up to a million tons. And mm-hmm. that project, so that's inter- that project is interesting for, for a whole set of reasons and, and in different in some ways from the, Wyoming one. So for starters, it is an oil company. Part of why they're doing it there is Occidental, which is like one of the biggest independent oil companies in the country. So it's sort of, you know, a notch below like the Exxon Chevrons, um, but still a very big company. So they have a ton of what's called enhanced oil recovery. So they they own a lot of older oil fields where what they've been doing for a while now is pumping CO2 into the oil field and the CO2 like mixes with and and sort of frees up a lot of oil that was not initial that didn't come up initially you know in the first round and the CO2 mostly comes from like other underground sources so that you know there's natural deposits but Occidental has been looking a lot into and investing money into both carbon capture and now carbon removal because they basically, well, the way actually, so their their CEO said this at a, at a conference I was at where they saw they have all these resources of these depleted oil fields and their, their nearby sources of CO2 are going to dry up at some point and they're going to need more CO2 and they, they say that this is how they're going to get it. So they've proposed this project and they've actually, so a little more detail has come out of that one because they applied for local tax breaks, basically from the school tax and from a, um, both from the kind of district schools and from the community college schools. And I sort of stumbled across this in reporting. And in those requests, one of which has been granted, they have to say how many jobs they would create and how much they would pay them. And in the case of the 500,000 ton plant, like it would be 25 jobs. So, you know, that's not a, not a ton of job or that's the, that's the amount that they promise. It could be more theoretically, but you know, in order to get this tax credit, they have to create those 25 jobs. 
So I think that that one is sort of the furthest along, but some of the CO2 that would be taken out of the air would be going to pump oil. And so that's made it really controversial. They also, another story I worked on last year was their negotiations with California, which has like a, a marketplace for to try to lower the carbon intensity of its transportation fuels. And, you know, we it's a little complicated. We can get into the details if you'd like, but basically the short version is they're in talks to be able to sell credits on that marketplace where like a refinery, say, in lieu of actually selling more low carbon fuel could buy carbon credits from Occidental in Texas um, for putting oil under the ground. But I'm sorry, putting CO2 under the ground. But that CO2 could actually end up pumping oil. And so that has made some people in California pretty upset, saying that's kind of like against the general intent of their low carbon fuel standard. Great. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, a lot, lot of details in yeah. trying to like <laughs> pause. Which, which way do I want to take it? Yeah, the EOR debate uh, I mean, I rages think, on within in carbon removal spaces too. That's definitely despite it actually accounting for a very very small percentage, right? I think it's like mm-hmm. sure five percent or something. But it, but it's a valid it's a valid argument, and it's it's certainly not something people are going to be excited about. But it's interesting how much kind of I would argue outsized attention things like EOR get when like you know, big picture, we're talking about gigatons moving out of the atmosphere. And and I think, I mean, I think part of that is about like the fact that there is public money on the table. Um, there are yeah. tax incentives and there are federal credits and there's this California program and beyond the kind of accounting, which there is like a complex sort of debate about. It's a question of like, well, what are we trying to do here? Right. And if the goal of what we're trying to do here is to I mean, I think most people who support pursuing carbon removal argue that like the highest priority is eliminating emissions. And in order to do that, you have to move off of fossil fuels. And so the idea that you would pair carbon removal with what is effectively a subsidy for oil production, I think is the kind of particularly galling part. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it makes sense why, why people get up in arms about it. So just one last question. Are there other stories in, about carbon removal that you're covering? Do you have other plans to visit projects? Uh, what's next for your kind of series that you're working on? So the, I mean, something I'm still following. I don't, I, the, the kind of conceived of series was, is complete. <laughs> so I, you know, cause I do generally cover like oil and gas more broadly too. And so I'm still tracking the carbon removal and carbon capture fields and we'll surely keep writing about it, particularly as it develops and as some of the infrastructure money starts getting, you know, directed and awarded. I mean, for a long time, this story has just been about like, is this real? You know, to some degree, we won't know the answer to that question for 20, 30 years, right? But mm-hmm. I'm interested in in all the little developments that will be coming over the next year or two or three that will start to help to give little little shreds of answers. I'm really interested in when it, instead of becoming, is this real when people actually, because I feel like the most common question is what is this? That's <laughs> like, just what is this at all? You know, we step outside our bubble and, and people don't really know about carbon removal, but then I'm really excited to, you know, follow you and perhaps hear some stories from you. 
what's going to happen when more, more and more people really do understand what carbon removal is, what it entails, what the potential benefits and impacts are, and then what's going to happen then, you know, because right now we're having these discussions within this relative slice of the, of the global population that is even aware that there's such a thing as director capture or, or that, you know, there's such a thing as ocean alkalinity enhancement, you know, and what's going to happen when we actually have lots of people understanding this. And a lot of times I equate this to solar and renewables and how those were kind of niche and unknown for a long time. And now what, what they are today, but I don't actually think that's going to be the same path for carbon removal because it's not as simple and personal as like, well, I need my lights to go on and this wind turbine can make my lights go on. You know, I feel like that's a much more concrete and personal relationship to it, to a burgeoning industry. Whereas the relationship to carbon removal is very different, not only because it's not just one thing and the things are different, you know, reforestation is very different from director capture, but also I think there's a, a challenge of how we make this personal for people and how people really understand. And maybe it is jobs and maybe it is like things actually being cited within communities, but like what's actually going to make people understand this. And when they do understand what's happening, how are people going to react? I'm, I'm very, very curious to see how, how that plays out. Yeah, well, and that's what I what why I wanted to go write about this um, project in Wyoming, right? Because it was uh, one small beginning example of that where it start, you know, potentially becoming real for people. Yeah. Cool. Well, with that, let's uh, let's wrap up, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us. We should have you on again if you would be willing, maybe sometime down the road when there's another project that you can tell us about. Yeah. And you've inspired me. I want to get, you know, more, more just like on the ground opinions live on air. I want to talk to carbon capture. I want to talk to all the players because this is, this is really cool and interesting and important for our field. So thanks so much for writing about it. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad to come on and talk about it. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. Please give us a great review on Spotify or Apple, wherever you're listening to this. Go ahead and share it with a friend. And if you aren't already listening to the Carbon Removal Newsroom and you're eager for more information on this specific topic of carbon removal, head on over. We'll leave a link in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.